I want to talk this morning to a little bit relevant to the gift day, but um, it isn't something purely for Winchester Family Church. And I trust if you're here as a visitor, you'll be able to draw some principles from this, at least from some of it. As I was thinking and praying about the gift day over the last few weeks, um, three passages really came, came to mind. They're quite different, and I've spoken on two of them. One was Matthew 17 about the uh, sort of four days' wages in the, gift, in, in the fish's mouth when Jesus, the miraculous provision of money to pay off a debt, tax debt, Matthew 17. I spoke on that a couple of weeks ago. Last week, uh, the passage in Timothy, which was part of our Timothy um, series, but I, I felt God really put it on my heart for speaking in this context. And then this week, a passage in Hebrews. Hebrews 6 and verses 9 to 12. And what I really felt with this one is that God gave it to me or laid it on my heart as a a word for this church, for Winchester Family Church, right at this time. A word of commendation, but also a word of challenge as well. And uh, I just want to read it to you and then get into talking about it for a few minutes. So we're at Hebrews 6 and verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends... We are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. As I say, these verses came really as a sort of now word for us. But before I get to that, I want to look at the context. I don't believe that I'm doing violence to the context, though I do want to make a bit more of a particular application. I'm going to mention a few things about the context. If you have your Bibles open, uh, we'll only be referring here, so we haven't got PowerPoint or anything. But in the verses prior to these, the writer has been addressing people who've given up or fallen away from this company of believers, these Hebrew Christians. And in verses 7 and 8, there is quite a simple, but I would say profound, picture or metaphor. It's actually quite sobering, and I think it may help us if we have problems understanding, you know, how can people sort of fall away and stuff. It's one aspect of how it can help us, just verses 7 and 8. And what it says is this. It says, God pours his rain, his blessing, on all sorts of soils. And one portion of land receives the rain of God's blessing and produces a useful crop, good fruit. But another section of land seems to receive the same moisture, the same rain from heaven and produces thorns and thistles. And there's a challenge that we can receive God's blessing. We can even see a measure of God's truth. We can have our eyes open. But until we embrace that and produce fruit, it's no good. People can come. And hear the gospel. They can come and even see something of it. They can even start to dabble in the Christian faith, maybe for quite some time. But what God's interested in is real fruit. That's the only real evidence 
that you are truly saved and you've embraced the work of his spirit. It is by their fruit you will know them. Experiencing God's blessing is possible for many, but that isn't the same as embracing the truth of the gospel and letting it penetrate your heart, change your heart and produce fruit. And out from that, in verse 9, the writer says, even though we're speaking like this, dear friends, he says, I don't think you're like that. I expect better things, confident of better things in your case. Then he uses this key phrase, <clears throat> things that accompany salvation. And what he says is that if you are really saved, there are things that accompany salvation. There is evidence that you are saved. See, there is a danger of just a superficial response, just like the rain falling. and It freshens up, but it doesn't produce any fruit. It might even produce weeds, provoke something negative even. It's not just enough to hear the gospel. It's not just enough to put your hand up or even sign a piece of paper or something. To be a Christian, there will be fruit. There will be things that accompany salvation. There will be things that change your life and the way you behave. Now, you won't be perfect, but there will be things that accompany salvation. The Spirit of God cannot enter your heart and life without making a difference. And in that context, here in this passage, he seems to sort of summarise some of the things that happened to them that showed they were truly saved. And they come out in the next few verses. And you can sum up some of these things that accompany salvation. What are some of the evidences that you really are a Christian? Well, a love for God. And a work for God, that you actually line your life up. Faith does have works associated with it, that you begin to love and work for God. You begin to, to give time and attention to God and his things. It actually changes your lifestyle to be a Christian. It impacts you. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. Giving your money doesn't make you a Christian. Doing good things doesn't make you a Christian. But all of those things could be part of works that accompany salvation. If they come from an inner change they are healthy and good and indeed are evidence of salvation. And the complete absence of them causes concern that the rain has not produced the fruit that it should. It's just bounced off and freshened up the soil, but there's no fruit. So there's a love for God, there's a work for God. There's also love for God's people and practical help for God's people. So a diligent commitment to the kingdom of God, to God's work. Actually, I would dare to say a diligent commitment to church is part of the evidence of being a real Christian. Now, I'm not saying it proves you're a Christian or you've got to be a, go to church to be a Christian. But I would say to you with a godly love, I hope a, a godly love in my heart, that if you say, I'm a Christian, I don't need other Christians, I don't need church, I don't need this, you are not lining up with the Bible. Because the Bible indicates that one of the evidences of salvation is that you have a, a love for God, love for his people, and a commitment to God, and a commitment to his people. And you're prepared to inconvenience yourself and help, help people. And actually, this bunch of Christians, the Hebrews, had done that. He later refers to this in chapter 10. We're not going to look at it this morning. How they had made major sacrifices to help others and to support God's people. It is briefly referred to here. He will not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. Many commentators on this passage say that these Hebrew Christians were probably in Rome where there was persecution of quite an intense form by about this time this book was written. 
they were Hebrews, they were Jews who were converts to Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus Christ, and they were in the Roman church. Now, the church at Rome, which received that glorious letter that Paul wrote to the Romans, had a long-standing reputation for generosity and giving freely and generously for their own needs and for the needs of people all across the Christian world. That seems to have been true from its early days. It was a magnificent church. It was a giving church. We have, from about AD 170, this extract from a letter from the Bishop of Corinth, Dionysius, who actually wrote to the Roman church. And he said this in about 170, so maybe over 100 years after this letter, about 100 years after this letter. This has been, to the Romans, this has been your custom from the beginning to do good in manifold ways to all the brothers and to send contributions to the many churches in every city. In some places you relieve the poverty of the needy, in others ministering to the brothers who are in the mines. That happens to be about miners for some reason. So there's this little testimony from history that this church, right from the beginning, was notorious as a good church, a giving church, with a heart to help others and bless them. And the writer here says, that's a sign that that God really got hold of you and you were truly saved. He also says in verse 10 that God doesn't forget that sort of thing. Those acts of kindness and generosity are noted by God and he sees them as being shown to him and done to him. So what you do for God's people, what you do as part of his kingdom and, and a devotion to what he's doing in the earth... God sees it and honours it and doesn't forget it. And then in the last couple of verses, verses 11 and 12, he brings a practical challenge out of this. Basically, don't stop. (laughs) He says, show the same diligence to the very end. Don't become lazy. Exercise faith and patience to inherit what God has promised. Now, at the personal level, and this is where I want to start with, for a moment, I believe God wants to speak these words to you, Winchester Family Church. I believe he wants me to speak them to you. This writer says, dear friends, verse 9. Now, you have become dear friends to Marion and myself. Honestly, have. We've only been here five and a half years. Um, And it was a big change for us. We've got many good friends in Hastings. We've been there most of our lives. But I now feel at home here, so does Marion. This is where our home is. This is where we felt at home for a long time. These are where our friends are. And it's uh, a funny aspect of life that you get engaged where you are and your memories begin to fade. If you're my sort of character, we've only got a certain amount of megabytes in your brain. Your, your memories begin to fade um, of the past because you live here and you feel this is where we belong and this is where we are. So you are dear friends. Many of you are dear friends, young and old. We know you. Uh, we don't know everybody that well. We know, I think we could call everybody our friend, but some, we could be quite a large number. We've come to know very well indeed. Now, actually, some of the folk who were part of Winchester Family Church years ago, perhaps when this project started of the NBC, aren't with us now. Some might have fallen away from the Lord. That's sad. Some might have just given up for some reason or got a little bit fed up maybe. Others have moved on for more positive reasons, but for whatever reason, they're not here. But some of you 
have been part of what this church has been doing for several, probably decades in some cases, but many years in some other cases. Some of you were here when we, they, this church started the project of buying this building. Mary and I weren't here. Some of you were, perhaps quite a few of you. And I think, first of all, God wants you to know that he will not forget your commitment and your labour of love. Now, I'm only focusing on one aspect. This isn't the whole deal. I do know that. But it is an aspect of commitment that has been committed giving, sacrificial commitment to the vision of this church by, by many here for many years. And I think you need to know that is never wasted. God is not unjust. God sees what people do. He doesn't forget your commitment and your work and your sacrifice. I believe like the church that probably this was written to in Rome, you, which is the family church, have a reputation for being generous and giving. You have been a providing church. You've sent many out. You've provided often for others. There's a bit of a, a sort of reputation even on buildings. I mean, the way you gathered your money for Stanmore Lane. I remember hearing about that back in the late 80s and early 90s. And then, of course, the purchase of this building. There's a sort of ringing out of commitment and love and sacrifice and generosity that comes from this church. You are a resourcing church, an Antioch base. You have been. There are significant leaders, and not least someone like Greg and Guy, who are elsewhere, and Bernard and others, who, who I knew even as being here, in my acquaintance with this church. And so there are many others too. There's what Dave and Amber have done in India. There's many, many things that have gone on from this church and continue to go on actually. And so there is a lot about this church's history that I think commends it. And then like with this passage, I just want to in the light of that say, I want each of you to shame, show the same diligence to the very end. Now not to the, only to the very end of your life, we're not thinking that big picture at the moment, to the very end of this phase we're in. Let's not give up. Let's not say, right, it's, oh, you know, it's been ten years, been working at it. Let's keep our eye on the ball. Let's press through to the end. That's for those of you who've been here all that time. Let's finish well on this building project. But actually, some of us, many of us in this room, have joined you since you started. I mean, it's ten, eleven years, isn't it, since this place was built, bought. And Marion and I certainly joined uh, halfway through, about five, six years ago, five and a half years ago. Now, we've been caught up in what you're doing. We, Marion and I, would feel very committed to it. And we've put our money into it as well. We're part of it. Now, we're to be diligent to the end as well. There's others of you here, and you might say, well, John, you're the leader, of course you're caught up in it. Yeah, but if you're part of this church, you're caught up in what this church is doing as well. And maybe you need to feel a, a fresh zeal because you've come with, it's like bringing on a substitute late in the football match, you know, after about 70 minutes or 80 minutes. They, and they, sometimes the commentators say they've got fresh legs. <laughs> I mean, some of you may need have fresh legs. You've only been here a few years. You haven't born 10 years of this project. You need to come alongside your brothers and sisters and be equally diligent and very committed to help them and us to see the thing completed. There's no room for what the Bible calls here laziness. It's quite a strong word, isn't it? I'm not saying people are lazy as such, but there can be an idleness that comes on. There can be a, a, a sort of, well, I've lost interest. Don't let that happen. Don't let that happen with what we're doing here. Don't give up. Don't lose interest. Let there be a zeal right to the end. Let there be a focus on, it, on, on what God's called us to. Let there be an energy around these Sundays even of giving. 
Come on, let's go for it over today and next Sunday. Practically, as a church, we need £200,000 from these two gift days. Otherwise, we'll need to go to the bank. We can live with that, but it would be a pity. We haven't had to yet in the ten years previously. So I'm praying that we see that hurdle mounted or surmounted over the next two weeks. But actually, if we were to see £350,000 come in, which would be quite miraculous, I know, we could sweep all the debts aside and it all would be finished. And it would be done with. But let's see what God does. But let's pray and expect for the best. Maybe this week God will prompt you to give again next week. Maybe this week you will find some amazing provision you hadn't expected, which you can add to what you do this morning. Do not think, I've done this morning, forget it. Yeah, we're focusing on this morning. But actually, some others will be here next week. The children will be back with us next week. And I, I think you might find God does something during the week. Just have a feeling there might be one or two testimonies like that. Because I think God's on our case. And I think we need to see this as in the same spirit of the rest of the last ten years. Being diligent right through to the end. But then we come to verse 12. Now, verse 12, the second half of it, reminds us, or reminded me, and I'm going to remind you, that this is a lot bigger than a building project. Because it says this. It says, imitate those who, through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. Now, we are looking at God to give us some things, to fulfill some promises which are a lot bigger and more than a building project. It's not just about a building project. When I spoke to you on January the 13th, I spoke about Exodus 23, verses 20 to 33, which I felt God had really put in my heart at the beginning of the year. And the the gist of that was that God was going to bring us to a place he prepared for us. Now, the place is not merely a physical place. It wasn't even that for Israel in the original setting of Exodus 23. It was a physical place. It was Cana. But actually, it was much more than that. In Cana, there was to be the presence of God. People, the nations, were to come and meet God where Israel was established and possessing the land of Cana. It would be a place where people could taste the kingdom of God. They could come to the, 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 the tabernacle and the temple and they could meet God. That was the, the idea. It wasn't just a physical land grab by one nation against another. God had a place for them which was promised and special. Now, I believe God's got a place for us. We're not just about physically grabbing a building and, and just being big. Or even gathering a great crowd in a building. Now that certainly is what we're looking for. We're looking for people to be saved and added. We're looking to grow. We're looking to double and double again. But we're looking for more than a crowd in a building. We're looking for a demonstration of New Testament church life here in the centre of modern Winchester. We're looking for it across Winchester and Chandlersford and Eastleigh and other places that some of you come from, in our homes and our small groups. It's not just about what we do in here. This is a tangible centre or hub of a living body, which I believe is meant to be twice as big as it is now, and then bigger than that still, touching this area. We're looking for a restoration of New Testament principles in church life. We're still looking for that in its fullness. We're looking for miracles, signs and wonders, for the Holy Spirit to be active amongst us, for for worship that just lifts us right off uh, uh, the plane, as it were, of of this world, and lifts us up into the heavenlies. We're looking for spirit-filled 
community and spirit-filled worship. We're looking for word and spirit people to hold the balance between God's word and the work of his spirit. We are called to establish an Antioch base, a church that influences and indeed provides for others and influences this area and the region around and even the nations. God's spoken actually about revival, very specifically to this church, about educational establishments, students being touched. We haven't seen it yet, but I believe it's part of God's promise to us. He's spoken about quality as well as quantity. That we're not just to be a crowd in a room, a big big room. We're to be people whole in Christ, complete in Jesus. We're not to be still. God's going to help us on this. This isn't laws. This is delights. God's going to want to set us free from some of our bondages and trials. He wants to heal us and restore us. We want a group of people who can welcome others because they're free from their own insecurities. People who can embrace those who are troubled and difficult because we're secure in Christ. We are going to be welcoming and, and, and uh, serving those around us and those who come into us. And fundamentally, we want to see hundreds of people saved, don't we? We want to see people saved and added to the church and healed and restored and forgiven. That's the place we want to get to. But this being established and paid for and done, is part of getting there. It's a couple of steps on the journey. It's not the whole thing, but it's definitely part of it. But verse 12 tells us it's faith and patience that cause us to inherit the promises. And I think that is a pretty profound truth, which I want to linger on for a few minutes. It's an important principle for us as a church and for all of you individually with your individual lives and individual faith battles. Faith and patience. As a group, as a church, as an individual, as a Christian, it is remarkably easy to give up one way or another, to become lazy and just coasting, to actually become negative and say, I don't want to carry on. I'm giving up. I'm throwing the towel in. It is possible to lose heart. Now, actually, you might say, oh, surely not. Actually, the New Testament has got a lot of references to don't lose heart, don't give up. And the reason it has is because it is very possible to do that. It can apply to your personal faith battles. You know, maybe some of you have been hanging on in faith or praying for the salvation of a relative A close relative, maybe for years, probably some of you for many years. Maybe you're looking for the restoration of a backslidden child, someone who, a child that walked with God and doesn't now. Maybe you're looking for some healing, physical. Maybe you're looking for some breakthrough in your own, perhaps, psychological life, if you like. Something that still you feel you're in bondage to or dogs your life. Maybe you're looking for provision, provision for a a job, provision for finance. Maybe it's a life partner, marriage partner. There's some area of faith battle that you've been pressing on for a long time. Maybe there's personal issues like your own salvation or even living a holy life, keeping sexual integrity year after year that you're, you're, you're feeling a bit weak on, a bit like giving up on. It can apply to corporate issues too. You had faith for church. You had faith to see church restored. Some of us have been around for years. I've been around in so-called restoration church since the mid-1970s. 
I went to Bible weeks in the mid-1970s. I've heard prophecies of revival since the mid-1970s. Now, it is easy to get a little bit weary or lose heart. It's easy to give up on stuff like church and the best you believe for in church. Now, God knows we have these battles. That's why so often in Scripture it mentions things like this. I'll just give you three random examples. And they were almost random. It's not difficult to find them. In Luke 18, verse 1, Jesus told his disciples a parable. And it says, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. It's the parable of the importuning widow. That they should always pray and not give up. In Galatians 6, verse 9, it says this. Listen to this. Let us not become weary in doing good. Now, why does it say that? Because you can become weary in doing good. That's why it says it. Don't let that happen to you. It says in love. It's not a law. It's not, look, I know the pressures, God says, I know the pressures you're under. Don't become weary doing good. There's nothing else to do but do good. You're going to do bad. I don't want to do bad. Let's do good. But you can feel weary. Don't become weary in doing good. Then it goes on to say, for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. (laughs) You've got to press on. There's a lot about persevering in the Bible and patience. Press on. You will reap a harvest if we do not give up. In Hebrews again, this is Hebrews 10 and verses 35 and 36. It says this, so do not throw away your confidence. (laughs) Don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. You need to persevere. Patience is a very important partner of faith. They are joint partners in the faith battle. Faith and patience. In many places in the Bible, we see people displaying patience as an evidence of their faith. Now, we can caricature patience. We can give it a very English caricature. Stiff upper lip, stoical, passive, an attitude that just takes anything and puts up with it. And I don't think that is what the Bible means by patience at all. It's more robust, it's more raw, and it's more emotional. Think of Hannah praying for her child, weeping. And wasn't it Eli thought she was drunk? She was patient year after year. She was praying for a child. She wasn't stoical. She wasn't passive. She wasn't just putting up with what happened. She was hanging on to God. That's what she was doing. Think of Abraham. Think of the ups and downs in Abraham's life. But we're told he was patient. We'll see that again in a moment. In fact, it's it's probably worth looking at it now. Look at verse 15 of chapter 6. Look at verse 15. So after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. When I read that, I genuinely smiled. It sounds as though he's waiting for a jolly bus, doesn't it? After waiting patiently, he received what is promised. As they wait for a bus. That covers... 15, 20 years of agony. That covers blowing it and producing Ishmael. That covers lying about his wife because he's scared she's going to be killed. That covers just hanging on in God for, for Isaac. Abraham waited patiently. How gracious is God? He knows that Abraham was in faith. He said, God's 
promised me a child from my own loins and through Sarah and somewhere. It means he waited and they got old and they were past childbearing. Presumably that implies past menopause for Sarah. And actually, still they waited. Do you think they just stoically? No, no, they failed. They were ups and downs. But what this means is there was a determination that God is going to break through and do this. Somewhere we're going to see God do this. Think of them all, David, Peter, we can't go on. These are people who, who went through doubts and disappointments, through fears and tears. They really did. We, another thing we can think about patience is that it's something that helps us to cope with failure. That patience is somehow a way we cope with failure. That is not what the Bible's thinking. It's actually calling it a pathway to success in this verse. It's faith and patience that get us to the successful conclusion. Imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Patience isn't putting up with failure. It is being consistent and constant in what you believe God has called you to and what you know is true about God and his word. That's what it is. It's consistency and constancy. It may be emotional, the ups and downs, there's failures and things. It's not perfection and it's not stoicism. And it's not at just accepting failure and saying, oh, well, maybe it won't happen. That, that's not what the Bible means at all. I, I just want to ground it. I'm trying to think of a, a, a real practical example. Let's assume you need a job. You look in God's word and you know God promises to provide for your needs. You know that God has said that he takes delight in the prosperity and the pleasure and delight in the prosperity of his servants. You also know that he said... To eat, you should work. There is a principle of work that God has put into very creation. And so there's a lot of reasons for believing God wants you to have a job. Your faith takes hold of what God says, and you pray with confidence for a job. You apply for jobs. You get three interviews on one day. You go to all three, and they all turn you down. You don't get any of them. Now what happens? This is the issue. Now what happens? This is where patience plays its part. Patience won't be stoicism. You'll be disappointed. You'll be upset. You'll feel a bit rejected. You may talk to a friend about it. But what real faith and patience is, is you still believe what you believed before the interviews. That God is your provider. That he will meet your needs. That it is right to work to eat. That God is pleased in the prosperity of his servant. He is for you, not against you. None of that has changed. And if you hold that position, you can have your emotional, you'll have your tears. Well, perhaps not if you're a man, you'll just get cross, unless you're a new man. But, but, you know, you'll have your emotional reaction to these three failures or disappointments, whatever you want to call them. But you don't miss the main point. You don't move from that. You don't say, oh, I won't, I'm not meant to have a job then, I'll give up. No, no. Faith and patience. You pray again. You say, thank you, Lord. I believe you are my provider. I believe you've got a job for me. It obviously wasn't one of those three. Here I go again. Send my CV out. Go to the next interview. Now, that's a very simple, concrete thing. But that is how we live with faith and patience. We root it in what we know God said. We root it in his word. We we soak things with prayer. And then we persevere It doesn't mean we're wrong to have bad moments and emotion, like Hannah almost like looked drunk with her crying, or Abraham with his confusion. But somewhere we know God is going to provide this. And we believe what he has said. 
What I'm about to say, I don't know where I got it from once. I know it's not my words, but I found this really helpful over the years. Have you got a conviction that is not consistent with your condition? There's a question. Have you got a conviction that is not consistent with your condition? What is going to change? Is your conviction going to change? Or are you going to hang on for the conditions to change? Amen? Many of us have convictions that are not consistent with our conditions. I have. But what are we changing? Our convictions? Are we going to press through to see the conditions change? I'll tell you, I've got some convictions in this area we're talking about. I believe with utter conviction that God wants a restored church that's righteous, that's holy, that's vibrant, that has New Testament ideas of church life. I believe it. I love my brothers and sisters in more ecclesiastical churches, but I believe we are meant to have churches that reflect something of New Testament principles and not 2,000 years of history. God can do all sorts of things in there, but I don't think we need the trappings of that. I believe firmly. Now, that's not, I'm not out to be an iconoclast. I'm just telling you, I believe in a certain sort of church. I believe church is born-again Christians, baptised in water and baptised in the Spirit. I believe that. Now, there's things that aren't consistent with my conviction. My conviction's not going to change. That's the sort of church we want to build. Churches that are holy communities where people love each other. They don't just attend on a Sunday. They're midweek. They're part of a, of a little community within the community. It's not just a preaching house. You come to on Sundays to hear a word. That is not church. I'm not going to build a place where you just come to listen once a week. That is not church. Hallelujah has a part to play in it. Church is people committed to Jesus and committed to each other. And committed means committed. They're not going to move lightly. They'll even have heart searching about a job move, let alone a local church move, because they're committed to a group of people. They're committed to a vision. They're committed to a calling in their life. Now, I, I believe these things. I believe that the gospel is the only answer for the people around me. Everybody from Prince Charles to the drunk in the gutter would needs to know Jesus and would be better off knowing Jesus. There is not a human being in this country, Muslim, Hindu, Buddhist, uh, royalty, poverty, who would not be better to be a born-again Christian following Jesus. Not one, not, there's not a Muslim in England, not a Hindu in England, not a Buddhist in England, not a New Ager who would not be better to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour and to totally turn from their false religion. Okay? I believe that. I believe there's no way there can be any other way. Do you understand what I mean? I don't think there is a middle way. You can have a bit of this and a bit of that. Now, I love the people, don't get me wrong, I love those Muslims and Hindus. I hate the false teaching that holds them in blindness. And they would be better to know Jesus, wouldn't they? So the gospel is the need and answer of our day for every human being around us. Whether they're raised up here locally in some sort of Christian tradition, which they don't really follow through, or whether they are immigrants from Poland or anywhere else, they all need to know Jesus, don't they? And whether they're wealthy people or poor people, 
Clever people or not very clever people. They need to know Jesus. I believe, I've got some other convictions. I believe God heals today. I believe God is a healing God. I believe he's a miracle working God. Although we've prayed for Marion's diabetes on and off for many years, including going through some very real faith battles, I still believe God's a healing God. I believe he can heal insulin-dependent diabetics. I do. I firmly believe that. I believe that God is a God of miracles. I believe God wants to see thousands saved. I actually have a conviction about that. I don't believe we're meant to be a tiny, tiny minority. I'm not sure we'll ever be a majority. I think that's not something I'm looking for so much. I'm looking for, in my day and age, a substantial impact of the gospel in my generation, in my area. I'm not going to get into details and theological speculations. I want to see thousands saved. I don't mind if we see the whole city saved. That would be brilliant. Half of them saved. That would be pretty good. But I wouldn't even mind a quarter. I'd like more than we got. I just feel we need to have a conviction that God is not about a few handfuls going to heaven. He doesn't, he's not trying to devise ways of keeping people out of heaven. Heaven will be full. Just think of the heart. He's out on the highways and byways. I want my banqueting hall full. God does not want just a handful like some sad party with a few in the corner. That's not how it's going to be. I believe the gospel is for all the nations of the world. Every nation. And there'll be representatives from every tribe and tongue in heaven. I have a lot of convictions that are not yet totally consistent with my conditions and the conditions around me. But the convictions aren't changing. I believe they're of God. What's got to change is the conditions. I'm looking for, I'm praying for, I'm believing for changes. I've seen some. Church life now is significantly better or further on than it was when I started leading a church in the late 1970s. It is significantly different. Don't let anybody tell you any other way. Don't let people give you rose-tinted twaddle that it was wonderful. I was there. I've been in house churches in the 1970s. And I'm grateful to be here. I'm grateful that hundreds of people are doing what handfuls were doing then. I'm grateful that whole ecclesiastical structures have embraced the Holy Spirit. You get spirit-filled, all sorts. You've got Alpha and Holy Trinity Bromley. They didn't exist in the 1970s. I suppose the church existed, but Alpha didn't. And, you know, I'm grateful for all that's gone on in the last 20 or 30 years. But it's not where we're yet to be, is it? We haven't really seen revival. I haven't seen it. I haven't seen what I really want to see. I haven't seen significant numbers saved. I want to see this place full. I want to have a problem of multiple services here. A problem of what we do with the children. We'll have that quite soon if we grow, praise God. Let's have it. Let's have it. Bring it on. Let's, let's get going. Let's not say, oh, it's a bit big. Well, for goodness sake, go and boil your head. What do you mean it's a bit big? You'll find heaven a bit big. I tell you, you will. And I, I, you know, it's a bit big. Do you want them to go to hell so you can feel comfortable? What's the matter with you? Now, the, 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 that is... If we saw what I want to see, we would have this full five times a day. That's what I'd say. Five times a day. Wall to wall. You Come on, we want them saved, don't we? We want them to know Jesus. We want them to love Jesus. And we want them to be changed. 
We want to save families, save homes. That, the gospel's the answer. Save lives. They go to heaven. So don't let delay discourage. It does sometimes. I've been through it. It does discourage. You battle it. You've got to press on. Patience goes with faith. It's a very important partner. Through faith and patience inherited the promises. We're going to keep praying. We're going to keep trusting. We're going to keep moving forward. We're going to give with joy and enthusiasm. This is the context we're giving in. That's why I want to talk about it. Of what's gone before and what lies ahead. Yeah, it's great. I want us to finish this project. But there'll be other things. Let's finish this one. And let's move forward. But let's see it as part of a bigger picture. It's not the whole thing. Oh, we pay for the building. Is that it? No, of course it's not it. That's great. So we don't keep worrying about it. Let's get it. Now let's use it. And let's see things more and more happening in here. We're battling with that as well. But that's a faith promise thing. That's a faith patience thing. It will be little by little. God said that. There will be a patience element. There always is. You won't find one story in this book of faith which doesn't have a patience element. I don't think you will. Think how long it took for Abraham, what we've used already. Let's wait patiently. Let's wait pressing through. That's not a passivity. It's not stoicism. It's passion. But it's holding on to God. So we're going to give with passion. We're going to rejoice for what God's done in the past. And we're going to give us in faith to what God's going to do in the future. Amen? We're going to do that in a minute. John, can you come up with your band, please? Let's praise God together.